0: Welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're finishing off our reading of Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. It's a long episode that covers the last two chapters, so I'll keep this brief. Check the show notes for footnotes and images referenced during the reading. And with that said, let's start our final reading. Chapter 9. Critique of Imperialism By the critique of imperialism, in the broad sense of the term, we mean the attitude of the different classes of society towards imperialist policy in connection with their general ideology. The enormous dimensions of finance capital concentrated in a few hands and creating an extraordinarily dense and widespread network of relationships and connections, which subordinates not only the small and medium, but also the very small capitalists and small masters on the one hand, and the increasingly intense struggle waged against other national-state groups of financiers for the division of the world and domination over other countries, on the other hand, caused the property classes to go over entirely to the side of imperialism. General enthusiasm over the prospects of imperialism, furious defense of it and painting it in the brightest colors, such are the signs of the times. Imperialist ideology also penetrates the working class. No Chinese wall separates it from the other classes. The leaders of the present-day so-called Social Democratic Party of Germany are justly called social imperialists, that is, socialists in words and imperialists in deeds. But as early as 1902, Hobson noted the existence in Britain of Fabian imperialists who belong to the opportunist Fabian society. Bourgeois scholars and publicists usually come out in defense of imperialism in a somewhat veiled form. They obscure its complete domination and its deep-growing roots, strive to push specific and secondary details into the forefront, and do their best to distract attention from essentials by means of absolutely ridiculous schemes for reform, such as police supervision of the trusts or banks, etc. Cynical and frank imperialists who are bold enough to admit the absurdity of the idea of reforming the fundamental characteristics of imperialism are a rarer phenomenon. Here is an example. The German imperialists attempt, in the magazine Archives of World Economy, to follow the national emancipation movements in the colonies, particularly, of course, in colonies other than those belonging to Germany. They note the unrest and the protest movements in India, the movement in Natal, South Africa, in the Dutch East Indies, etc. One of them, commenting on an English report of a conference held on June 28th to 30th, 1910, of representatives of various subject nations and races, of peoples of Asia, Africa, and Europe who are under foreign rule, Writes as follows in appraising the speeches delivered at this conference Quote, We are told that we must fight imperialism, that the ruling states should recognize the right of subject peoples to independence, that an international tribunal should supervise the fulfillment of treaties concluded between the great powers and weak peoples. Further than the expression of these pious wishes, they do not go. We see no trace of understanding of the fact that imperialism is inseparably bound up with capitalism in its present form, and that, therefore, an open struggle against imperialism would be hopeless, unless, perhaps, the fight were to be confined to protests against certain of its especially abhorrent excesses. Footnote 1. End quote. Since the reform of the basis of imperialism is a deception, a pious wish, Since the bourgeois representatives of the oppressed nations go no further forward, the bourgeois representative of an oppressing nation goes further backward, to servility towards imperialism under cover of the claim to be scientific. That is also logic. The questions as to whether it is possible to reform the basis of imperialism, whether to go forward to the further intensification and deepening of the antagonisms which it engenders, or backward, towards allaying these antagonisms, are fundamental questions in the critique of imperialism. Since the specific political features of imperialism are reaction everywhere, and increased national oppression due to the oppression of the financial oligarchy and the elimination of free competition, a petty bourgeois democratic opposition to imperialism arose at the beginning of the 20th century in nearly all imperialist countries. Kotsky not only did not trouble to oppose was not only unable to oppose this petty bourgeois reformist to opposition which is really reactionary in its economic basis but became merged with it in practice and this is precisely where Kotsky and the broad international kotskyan trend deserted marxism in the united states the imperialist war waged against spain in 1898 stirred up the opposition of the anti-imperialists. The last of the Mohicans of bourgeois democracy, who declared this war to be criminal, regarded the annexation of foreign territories as a violation of the constitution, declared that the treatment of Aguinaldo, leader of the Filipinos, the Americans promised him the independence of his country, but later landed the troops and annexed it, was jingo treachery, and quoted the words of Lincoln, quote, when the white man governs himself, that is self-government. But when he governs himself and also governs others, it is no longer self-government, it is despotism. Footnote 2. End quote. But as long as all this criticism shrank from recognizing the inseparable bond between imperialism and the trusts, and, therefore, between imperialism and the foundations of capitalism, While it shrank from joining the forces engendered by large scale capitalism and its development, it remained a pious wish. This is also the main attitude taken by Hobson in his critique of imperialism. Hobson anticipated Kotsky in protesting against the inevitability of imperialism argument, and in urging the necessity of increasing the consuming capacity of the people under capitalism. The petty bourgeois point of view in the critique of imperialism, the omnipotence of the banks, the financial oligarchy, etc., is adopted by the authors I have often quoted, such as Agade, A. Landsberg, L. Eschwiege, and among the French writers, Victor Berard, author of a superficial book entitled England and Imperialism, which appeared in 1900. All these authors, who make no claim to be Marxists, Contrast imperialism with free competition and democracy. Condemn the Baghdad railway scheme, which is leading to conflicts and war. Utter pious wishes for peace, etc. This applies also to the compiler of international stock and share issue statistics, A. Neymark, who, after calculating the billions of francs representing international securities, exclaimed in 1912, quote, Is it possible to believe that peace may be disturbed? That... In the face of these enormous figures, anyone would risk starting a war? Footnote 3. End quote. Such simple-mindedness on the part of the bourgeois economists is not surprising. Moreover, it is in their interest to pretend to be so naive and to talk seriously about peace under imperialism. But what remains of Kotsky's Marxism? when, in 1914, 1915, and 1916, he takes up the same bourgeois reformist point of view and affirms that everybody is agreed, imperialists, pseudo-socialists, and social pacifists, on the matter of peace. Instead of an analysis of imperialism and an exposure of the depths of its contradictions, we have nothing but a reformist, pious wish to wave them aside, to evade them. Here is a sample of Kotsky's economic criticism of imperialism. He takes the statistics of the British export and import trade with Egypt for 1872 and 1912. It seems that this export and import trade has grown more slowly than British foreign trade as a whole. From this, Kotsky concludes that, quote, "...we have no reason to suppose that without military occupation, the growth of British trade with Egypt would have been less simply as a result of the mere operation of economic factors. The urge of capital to expand can be best promoted, not by the violent methods of imperialism, but by peaceful democracy. Footnote 4. End quote. This argument of Kotsky's, which is repeated in every key by his Russian armor-bearer and Russian shielder of the social chauvinists, Mr. Spectator, constitutes the basis of Kotskyan critique of imperialism, and that is why we must deal with it in greater detail. We will begin with a quotation from Hilferding, whose conclusions Kotsky on many occasions, and notably in April 1915, has declared to have been unanimously adopted by all socialist theoreticians. Quote, It is not the business of the proletariat, writes Hilferding, to contrast the more progressive capitalist policy with that of the now-bygone era of free trade and of hostility towards the state. The reply of the proletariat to the economic policy of finance capital, to imperialism, cannot be free trade, but socialism. The aim of proletarian policy cannot today be the ideal of restoring free competition, which has now become a reactionary ideal, but the complete elimination of competition by the abolition of capitalism. Footnote 5 End quote. Kotsky broke with Marxism by advocating in the epoch of finance capital a reactionary ideal, peaceful democracy, the mere operation of economic factors. For, objectively, this ideal drags us back from monopoly to non monopoly capitalism and is a reformist swindle. Trade with Egypt, or with any other colony or semi colony, would have grown more without military occupation, without imperialism, and without finance capital. What does this mean? That capitalism would have developed more rapidly if free competition had not been restricted by monopolies in general, or by the connections, yoke, i.e. also the monopoly, of finance capital, or by the monopolist possession of colonies by certain countries. Kotsky's argument can have no other meaning, and this meaning... Is meaningless. Let us assume that free competition, without any sort of monopoly, would have developed capitalism and trade more rapidly. But the more rapidly trade and capitalism develop, the greater is the concentration of production and capital, which gives rise to monopoly, and monopolies have already arisen precisely out of free competition. Even if monopolies have now begun to retard progress, it is not an argument in favor of free competition, which has become impossible after it has given rise to monopoly. Whichever way one turns Kotsky's argument, one will find nothing in it, except reaction and bourgeois reformism. Even if we correct this argument and say, as Spectator says, that the trade of the colonies with Britain is now developing more slowly than their trade with other countries, it does not save Kotsky, for it is also monopoly also imperialism that is beating Great Britain, only it is the monopoly and imperialism of another country, America, Germany. It is known that the cartels have given rise to a new and peculiar form of protective tariffs, i.e. goods suitable for export are protected. Engels noted this in volume 3 of Capital. It is known too that the cartels and finance capital have a peculiar system to themselves, that of exporting goods at cut-rate prices, or dumping, as the English call it. Within a given country, the cartel sells its goods at high monopoly prices, but sells them abroad at a much lower price to undercut the competitor, to enlarge its own production to the utmost, etc. If Germany's trade with the British colonies is developing more rapidly than Great Britain's, it only proves that German imperialism is younger, stronger, and better organized than British imperialism, is superior to it, but it by no means proves the superiority of free trade, for it is not a fight between free trade and protection and colonial dependence, but between two rival imperialisms, two monopolies, two groups of finance capital. The superiority of German imperialism over British imperialism is more potent than the wall of colonial frontiers or of protective tariffs. To use this as an argument in favour of free trade and peaceful democracy is banal. It means forgetting the essential features and characteristics of imperialism, substituting petty bourgeois reformism for Marxism. It is interesting to note that even the bourgeois economist, A. Landsberg, whose criticism of imperialism is as petty bourgeois as Kotsky's, nevertheless got closer to a more scientific study of trade statistics. He did not compare one single country, chosen at random, and one single colony with the other countries. He examined the export trade of an imperialist country, one, with countries which are financially dependent upon it, and borrow money from it, and two, with countries which are financially independent. He obtained the following results. Figure 1. Showing export trade of Germany both to countries financially dependent on Germany and countries financially independent of Germany, in 1889 and 1908, as well as showing the percentage increase between those two periods. Landsberg did not draw conclusions, and therefore, strangely enough, failed to observe that if the figures prove anything at all, they prove that he is wrong, for the exports to countries financially dependent on Germany have grown more rapidly, if only slightly, than exports to the countries which are financially independent. I emphasize the if, for Landsberg's figures are far from complete. Tracing the connections between exports and loans, Landsberg writes, quote, in 1890 to 91, a Romanian loan was floated through the German banks, which had already in previous years made advances on this loan. It was used chiefly to purchase railway materials in Germany. In 1891, German exports to Romania amounted to 55 million marks. The following year, they dropped to 39.4 million marks, and, with fluctuations, to 25.4 million in 1900. Only in very recent years have they regained the level of 1891 thanks to two new loans. German exports to Portugal rose, following the loans of 1888 to 21.1 million, 1890, Then, in the following two years, they dropped to 16.2 million and 7.4 million and regained their former level, only in 1903. The figures of German trade with Argentina are still more striking. Loans were floated in 1888 and 1890. German exports to Argentina reached 60.7 million marks, 1889. Two years later, they amounted to only 18.6 million marks, less than one third of the previous figure. It was not until 1901 that they regained and surpassed the level of 1889, and then only as a result of new loans floated by the state and by municipalities, with advances to build power stations and with other credit operations. Exports to Chile, as a consequence of the loan of 1889, rose to 45.2 million marks in 1892, and a year later dropped to 22.5 million marks. A new Chilean loan floated by the German banks in 1906 was followed by a rise of exports to 84.7 million marks in 1907, only to fall again to 52.4 million marks in 1908. Footnote 6. From these facts, Landsberg draws the amusing petty bourgeois moral of how unstable and irregular export trade is when it is bound up with loans. How bad it is to invest capital abroad instead of naturally and harmoniously, developing home industry. How costly are the millions in baksheesh that Krupp has to pay in floating foreign loans, etc. But the facts tell us clearly the increase in exports is connected with just these swindling tricks of finance capital, which is not concerned with bourgeois morality, but with skinning the ox twice. First it pockets the profits from the loan, then it pockets other profits from the same loan, which the borrower uses to make purchases from Krupp, or to purchase railway material from the steel syndicate, etc. I repeat that I do not by any means consider Landsberg's figures to be perfect, but I had to quote them because they are more scientific than Kotskys and Spectators, and because Landsberg showed the correct way to approach the question. In discussing the significance of finance capital in regards to exports, etc., one must be able to single out the connection of exports especially and solely with the tricks of the financiers, especially and solely with the sale of goods by cartels, etc. Simply to compare colonies with non-colonies, one imperialism with another imperialism, one semi-colony or colony, Egypt, with all other countries, is to evade and to obscure the very essence of the question. Kotsky's theoretical critique of imperialism has nothing in common with Marxism, and serves only as a preamble to propaganda for peace and unity with the opportunists and the social chauvinists, precisely for the reason that it evades and obscures the very profound and fundamental contradictions of imperialism, the contradictions between monopoly and free competition which exists side by side with it, between the gigantic operations and gigantic profits of finance capital, and honest trade in the free market, the contradiction between cartels and trusts on the one hand and non-cartelized industry on the other, etc. The notorious theory of ultra-imperialism invented by Kotsky is just as reactionary. Compare his argument on this subject in 1915 with Hobson's arguments in 1902. Kotsky, quote, Cannot the present imperialist policy be supplanted by a new ultra imperialist policy, which will introduce the joint exploitation of the world by internationally united finance capital in place of the mutual rivalries of national finance capitals? Such a new phase of capitalism is, at any rate, conceivable. Can it be achieved? Sufficient promises are still lacking to enable us to answer this question. Footnote 7. End quote. Hobson, quote, Christendom, thus laid out in a few great federal empires, each with a retinue of uncivilized dependencies, seems to many the most legitimate development of present tendencies, and one which would offer the best hope of permanent peace on an assured basis of inter-imperialism. End quote. Kotsky called ultra-imperialism or super-imperialism what Hobson, 13 years earlier, described as inter-imperialism. Except for coining a new and clever catchword, replacing one Latin prefix by another, the only progress Kotsky has made in the sphere of scientific thought is that he gave out as Marxism what Hobson, in effect, described as the cant of English Parsons. After the Anglo-Boer War, It was quite natural for this highly honorable caste to exert their main efforts to console the British middle class and the workers who had lost many of their relatives on the battlefields of South America and who were obliged to pay higher taxes in order to guarantee still higher profits for the British financiers. And what better consolation could there be than the theory that imperialism is not so bad, that it stands close to inter- or ultra-imperialism, Which can ensure permanent peace. No matter what the good intentions of the English Parsons or of sentimental Kotsky may have been, the only objective, i.e., real, social significance of Kotsky's theory is this it is the most reactionary method of consoling the masses with hopes of permanent peace being possible under capitalism by distracting their attention from the sharp antagonisms and acute problems of the present times and directing it towards illusory prospects of an imaginary ultra-imperialism of the future. Deception of the masses? That is all there is in Kotsky's Marxist theory. Indeed, it is enough to compare well-known and indisputable facts to become convinced of the other falsity of the prospects which Kotsky tries to conjure up before the German workers, and the workers of all lands. Let us consider India, Indochina, and China, It is known that these three colonial and semi-colonial countries, with a population of six to seven hundred million, are subjected to the exploitation of the finance capital of several imperialist powers. Great Britain, France, Japan, the USA, etc. Let us assume that these imperialist countries form alliances against one another in order to protect or enlarge their possessions, their interests, and their spheres of influence in these Asiatic states these alliances will be inter-imperialist or ultra-imperialist alliances. Let us assume that all the imperialist countries conclude an alliance for the peaceful division of these parts of Asia. This alliance would be an alliance of internationally united finance capital. There are actual examples of alliances of this kind in the history of the 20th century. The attitude of the powers to China, for instance. We ask, is it conceivable assuming the capitalist system remains intact, and this is precisely the assumption that Kotsky does make, that such alliances would be more than temporary, that they would eliminate friction, conflicts, and struggle in every possible form? The question has only to be presented clearly for any other than the negative answer to be impossible. This is because the only conceivable basis under capitalism for the division of spheres of influence, interests, colonies, Etc., is a calculation of the strength of those participating, their general economic, financial, military strength, etc. And the strength of these participants in the division does not change to an equal degree, for the even development of different undertakings, trusts, branches of industry, or countries is impossible under capitalism. Half a century ago, Germany was a miserable, insignificant country. If her capitalist strength is compared with that of the Britain at the time, Japan compared with Russia in the same way. Is it conceivable that in 10 or 20 years' time the relative strength of the imperialist powers will have remained unchanged? It is out of the question. Therefore, in the realities of the capitalist system, not in the banal philistine fantasies of English Parsons, or of the German Marxist Kotsky, inter-imperialist or ultra-imperialist alliances no matter what form they may assume, whether of one imperialist coalition against another, or of a general alliance embracing all the imperialist powers, are inevitably nothing more than a truce in periods between wars. Peaceful alliances prepare the ground for wars, and in their turn grow out of wars. The one conditions the other, producing alternating forms of peaceful and non-peaceful struggle, On one and the same basis of imperialist connections and relations within world economics and world politics. But in order to pacify the workers and reconcile them with the social chauvinists who have deserted to the side of the bourgeoisie, overwise Kotsky separates one link of a single chain from another, separates the present peaceful and ultra imperialist, nay, ultra ultra imperialist, alliance of all the powers for the pacification of China, remember the suppression of the Boxer Rebellion, from the non-peaceful conflict of tomorrow, which will prepare the ground for another peaceful general alliance for the partition, say, of Turkey on the day after tomorrow, etc., etc. Instead of showing the living connection between periods of imperialist peace and periods of imperialist war, Kotsky presents the workers with a lifeless abstraction in order to reconcile them to their lifeless leaders. An American writer, Hill, in his A History of the Diplomacy in the International Development of Europe, refers in his preface to the original periods in the recent history of diplomacy. 1. The Era of Revolution. 2. The Constitutional Movement. 3. The present era of commercial imperialism. Footnote 8. Another writer divides the history of Great Britain's world policy since 1870 into four periods. 1. The First Asiatic period, that of the struggle against Russia's advance in Central Asia towards India. 2. The African period, approximately 1885-1902, that of the struggle against France for the partition of Africa, the Fashoda Incident of 1898, which brought her within a hair's breadth of war with France. 3. The Second Asiatic Period, alliance with Japan against Russia. And 4. The European Period, chiefly anti-German. Footnote 9. Quote, the political patrol clashes take place on the financial field. End quote. Wrote the banker Greiser in 1905, in showing how French finance capital operating in Italy was preparing the way for a political alliance of these countries, and how a conflict was developing between Germany and Great Britain over Persia, between all the European capitalists over Chinese loans, etc. Behold, the living reality of peaceful, ultra-imperialist alliances in their inseparable connection with ordinary imperialist conflicts. Kutsky's obscuring of the deepest contradictions of imperialism, which inevitably boils down to painting imperialism in bright colours, leaves its traces in this writer's criticism of the political features of imperialism. Imperialism is the epoch of finance capital and of monopolies, which introduce everywhere the striving for domination, not for freedom. Whatever the political system, The result of these tendencies is everywhere reaction and an extreme intensification of antagonisms in this field. Particularly intensified become the yoke of national oppression and the striving for annexations, i.e., the violation of national independence, for annexation is nothing but the violation of the rights of nations to self-determination. Hilferding rightly notes the connection between imperialism and the intensification of national oppression. Quote, in the newly opened up countries, he writes, the capital imported into them intensifies antagonisms and excites against the intruders the constantly growing resistance of the peoples who are awakening to national consciousness. This resistance can easily develop into dangerous measures against foreign capital. The old social relations have become completely revolutionized. The age-long agrarian isolation of nations without history, is destroyed, and they are drawn into the capitalist whirlpool. Capitalism itself gradually provides the subjugated with the means and resources for their emancipation, and they set out to achieve the goal which once seemed highest to the European nations, the creation of a united national state as a means to economic and cultural freedom. This movement for national independence threatens European capital in its most valuable and most promising fields of exploitation, and European capital can maintain its domination only by continually increasing its military forces. Footnote 10. End quote. To this must be added that it is not only in newly opened up countries, but also in the old, that imperialism is leading to annexation, to increase national oppression, and consequently, also to increasing resistance. While objecting to the intensification of political reaction by imperialism, Kotsky leaves in the shade a question that has become particularly urgent, vis-a-vis the impossibility of unity with the opportunists in the epoch of imperialism. While objecting to annexations, he presents his objections in a form that is most acceptable and least offensive to the opportunists. He addresses himself to a German audience, yet he obscures the most topical and important point, for instance, the annexation of Alsace-Lorraine by Germany. In order to appraise this, mental aberration of Kotskis, I shall take the following example. Let us suppose that a Japanese person condemns the annexation of the Philippines by the Americans. The question is, will many believe that he does so because he has a horror of annexations as such, and not because he himself has a desire to annex the Philippines? and shall we not be constrained to admit that the fight the Japanese person is waging against the annexations can be regarded as being sincere and politically honest only if he fights against the annexation of Korea by Japan and urges freedom for Korea to secede from Japan. Kotsky's theoretical analysis of imperialism as well as his economic and political critique of imperialism are permeated through and through with a spirit absolutely irreconcilable with Marxism, of obscuring and glossing over the fundamental contradictions of imperialism and with a striving to preserve, at all costs, the crumbling unity with opportunism in the European working-class movement. Chapter 10. The place of imperialism in history. We have seen that in its economic essence, imperialism is monopoly capitalism. This in itself determines its place in history, For monopoly that grows out of the soil of free competition, and precisely out of free competition, is the transition from the capitalist system to a higher socio-economic order. We must take special note of the four principal types of monopoly, or principal manifestations of monopoly capitalism, which are characteristic of the epoch we are examining. Firstly, monopoly arose out of the concentration of production at a very high stage. This refers to the monopolist capitalist associations, cartels, syndicates, and trusts. We have seen the important part these play in present-day economic life. At the beginning of the 20th century, monopolies had acquired complete supremacy in the advanced countries, and although the first steps towards the formation of the cartels were taken by countries enjoying the protection of high tariffs, Germany, America, Great Britain, with her system of free trade, revealed the same basic phenomenon only a little later namely the birth of monopoly out of concentration of production. Secondly, monopolies have stimulated the seizure of the most important sources of raw materials, especially for the basic and most highly cartelized industries in capitalist society, the coal and iron industries. The monopoly of the most important sources of raw materials has enormously increased the power of big capital, and has sharpened the antagonism between cartelized and non-cartelized industry. Thirdly, monopoly has sprung from the banks. The banks have developed from modest middlemen enterprises into the monopolists of finance capital. Some three to five of the biggest banks in each of the foremost capitalist countries have achieved the personal link-up between industrial and bank capital, and have concentrated in their hands the control of thousands upon thousands of millions, which form the greater part of the capital and income of entire countries a financial oligarchy which throws a close network of dependence relationships over all the economic and political institutions of present-day bourgeois society, without exception. Such is the most striking manifestation of this monopoly. Fourthly, monopoly has grown out of colonial policy. To the numerous old motives of colonial policy, finance capital has added the struggle for the sources of raw materials, for the export of capital, for spheres of influence, i.e. for spheres for profitable deals, concessions, monopoly profits, and so on, economic territory in general. When the colonies of the European powers, for instance, comprised only one-tenth of the territory of Africa, as was the case in 1876, colonial policy was able to develop, by methods other than those of monopoly, by the free grabbing of territories, so to speak. But when nine-tenths of Africa had been seized, by 1900, when the whole world had been divided up, there was inevitably ushered in the era of monopoly possession of colonies, and, consequently, of particularly intense struggle for the division and redivision of the world. The extent to which monopolist capital has intensified all the contradictions of capitalism is generally known. It is sufficient to mention the high cost of living and the tyranny of the cartels, This intensification of contradictions constitutes the most powerful driving force of the transitional period of history, which began from the time of the final victory of world finance capital. Monopolies, oligarchy, the striving for domination and not for freedom, the exploitation of an increasing number of small or weak nations by a handful of the richest or most powerful nations, all these have given birth to those distinctive characteristics of imperialism, which compel us to define it as parasitic or decaying capitalism. More and more prominently there emerges, as one of the tendencies of imperialism, the creation of the rentier estate, the usurer estate, in which the bourgeoisie, to an ever-increasing degree, lives on the proceeds of capital exports and by clipping coupons. It would be a mistake to believe that this tendency to decay precludes the rapid growth of capitalism. It does not. In the epoch of imperialism, certain branches of industry, certain strata of the bourgeoisie, and certain countries betray, to a greater or lesser degree, now one and now another of these tendencies. On the whole, capitalism is growing far more rapidly than before. But this growth is not only becoming more and more uneven in general, its unevenness also manifests itself, in particular in the decay of the countries which are richest in capital. In regard to the rapidity of Germany's economic development, Reiser, the author of the book on the big German banks, states quote, "The progress of the preceding period eighteen forty eight to eighteen seventy which had not been exactly slow, compares with the rapidity with which the whole of Germany's national economy and with it the German banking progressed during this period, eighteen seventy to nineteen o five in about the same way as the speed of the mail coach in the good old days compares with the speed of the present-day automobile, which is whizzing past so fast that it endangers not only innocent pedestrians in its path, but also the occupants of the car. End quote. In its turn, this finance capital, which has grown with such extraordinary rapidity, is not unwilling, precisely because it has grown so quickly, to pass on to a more tranquil possession of colonies which have to be seized, and not only by peaceful methods, from richer nations. In the United States, economic development in the last decades has been even more rapid than in Germany, and for this very reason, the parasitic features of modern American capitalism have stood out with particular prominence. On the other hand, a comparison of, say, the Republican American bourgeoisie with the monarchist Japanese or German bourgeoisie shows that the most pronounced political distinction diminishes to an extreme degree in the epoch of imperialism, not because it is unimportant in general, but because in all these cases we are talking about a bourgeoisie which has definite features of parasitism. The receipt of high monopoly profits by the capitalists in one of the numerous branches of industry in one of the numerous countries, etc., makes it economically possible for them to bribe certain sections of the workers, and for a time a fairly considerable minority of them and win them to the side of the bourgeoisie of a given industry or given nation against all the others. The intensification of antagonisms between imperialist nations for the division of the world increases this urge, and so there is created that bond between imperialism and opportunism, which revealed itself first and most clearly in Great Britain, owing to the fact that certain features of imperialist development were observable there much earlier than in other countries. Some writers. El Martov, for example, are prone to wave aside the connection between imperialism and opportunism in the working class movement. A particularly glaring fact at the present time, by resorting to official optimism, a la Kotsky and Huysman, like the following. The cause of the opponents of capitalism would be hopeless if it were a progressive capitalism that led to the increase of opportunism, or if it were the best-paid workers who were inclined towards opportunism, etc. We must have no illusions about optimism of this kind. It is optimism in respect of opportunism. It is optimism which serves to conceal opportunism. As a matter of fact, the extraordinary rapidity and the particularly revolting character of the development of opportunism is by no means a guarantee that its victory will be durable. The rapid growth of a painful abscess on a healthy body can only cause it to burst more quickly and thus relieve the body of it. The most dangerous of all in this respect are those who do not wish to understand that the fight against imperialism is a sham and humbug unless it is inseparably bound up with the fight against opportunism. From all that has been said in this book on the economic essence of imperialism, it follows that we must define it as capitalism in transition, or, more precisely, as moribund capitalism. It is very instructive in this respect to note that bourgeois economists, in describing modern capitalism, frequently employ catchwords and phrases like interlocking, absence of isolation, etc. In conformity with their functions and course of development, banks are not purely private business enterprises, they are more and more outgrowing the sphere of purely private business regulation. And this very riser, whose words I have just quoted, declares with all seriousness that the prophecy of the Marxists concerning socialization has not come true. What then does this catchword interlocking express? It merely expresses the most striking feature of the process going on before our eyes, It shows that the observer counts the separate trees, but cannot see the wood. It slavishly copies the superficial, the fortuitous, the chaotic. It reveals the observer as one who is overwhelmed by the mass of raw material and is utterly incapable of appreciating its meaning and importance. Ownership of shares, the relations between owners of private property, interlock in a haphazard way. But underlying this interlocking, at its very base, are the changing social relations of production. When a big enterprise assumes gigantic proportions and, on the basis of an exact computation of mass data, organizes according to plan the supply of primary raw materials to the extent of two-thirds or three-fourths of all that is necessary for tens of millions of people, when the raw materials are transported in a systematic and organized manner to the most suitable places of production, sometimes situated hundreds or thousands of miles from each other, when a single center directs all the consecutive stages of processing and material, right up to the manufacture of numerous varieties of finished articles, when these products are distributed according to a single plan among tens and hundreds of millions of consumers, the marketing of oil in America and Germany by the American Oil Trust. Then it becomes evident that we have socialization of production, and not mere interlocking, that private economic and private property relations constitute a shell which no longer fits its contents, a shell which must inevitably decay if its removal is artificially delayed, a shell which may remain in a state of decay for a fairly long period, if, at the worst, the cure of the opportunist abscess is protracted, but which will inevitably be removed. The enthusiastic admirer of German imperialism, Schultz-Gevernitz, exclaims, Once the supreme management of the German banks has been entrusted to the hands of a dozen persons, their activity is even today more significant for the public good than that of the majority of the ministers of state. Lenin's note, the interlocking of bankers, ministers, magnates of industry, and rentiers here is conveniently forgotten. If we imagine the development of those tendencies, we have noted, carried to their logical conclusion, we will have, the money capital of the nation united in the banks, the banks themselves combined into cartels, the investment capital of the nation cast in the shape of securities. Then the forecast of that genius, St. Simon, will be fulfilled. The present anarchy of production, which corresponds to the fact that economic relations are developing without uniform regulation, must make way for organization in production. Production will no longer be directed by isolated manufacturers, independent of each other and ignorant of man's economic needs, that will be done by a certain public institution, a central committee of management, being able to survey the large field of social economy from a more elevated point of view. We'll regulate it for the benefit of the whole of society. will put the means of production into suitable hands, and above all, will take care that there be constant harmony between production and consumption, Institutions already exist which have assumed, as part of their functions, a certain organization of economic labor, the banks. We are still a long way from the fulfillment of St. Simon's forecast, but we are on the way towards it. Marxism, different from what Marx imagined, but different only in form. Footnote 11. End a crushing refutation of Marx indeed, which retreats a step from Marx's precise scientific analysis to St. Simon's guesswork, the guesswork of a genius, but guesswork all the same. This concludes our reading of Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. Next week we'll be on a new reading about the development of imperialism the century following Lenin's work, but that'll be a much shorter series. If you have suggestions for readings, as well as any questions, comments or corrections, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter, at LeftistReading. The podcast is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. Check out AbnormalMapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts there, about movies, books, video games, and anime. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.